In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness covered the face of the deep. And the Spirit of the Lord hovered over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was. Light breaks into this cosmic darkness and in the beginning becomes the beginning. The beginning of you and me, this and that, what is to come, all of it is coming forth as light breaks into the darkness. As we begin our second installment of our series in Genesis, it seems to be very obvious that the Lord is doing something very unique with the idea of light. And last week, our pastor kind of opened up the idea of why Genesis? Why is Genesis an important reality for us to know and understand? And, and truthfully, simply, it's our core beliefs are wrapped up in the very beginning. Genesis and Creator God, the foundation of the Word, an understanding of Genesis gives us a greater understanding of God and of man and of ultimately our faith. And so in Genesis, we see for the first time God. And God, for the first time, we see the Word. And for the first time, we see man. All of it untainted, without sin, just as it was supposed to be in the beginning. And so let our hearts listen to what God has for us as we open up his story to us. So if you have your copy of God's word, I invite you to open up to Genesis chapter one. We're gonna continue our study starting in verse three. If you don't know where Genesis is, go to the table of contents and turn a few pages to the right. Starting in verse 3, the scripture says, And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, Let there be an expanse in the middle of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land to earth and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation plants yielding seed and fruit seeds bearing fruit in which their seed each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. And the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, trees bearing fruit, which is their seed, according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. Let's pray together. Father, as we start this idea of your creative hand at work, I pray, Father, that we don't allow the familiar story of creation to get in the way of what you might have for us this morning. May you open our eyes and our ears to the truth of your word. And that, Father, may we see a glimpse of your glory in, in our heart's desire and passion. May we seek you in a new way as you 
in a new way have started humanity. And in Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, on day one, what does God do? God creates the heavens and the earth. We know this from really verse one, as it says, God created the heavens and the earth. Now in this void, there is the heavens and the heavens here kind of refer to anything that is beyond the earth, the outer space and the universe. And we'll know later as the story begins to unfold that heaven will be God's residence, that it will be not only for him, but for the angels and then for all of those who place their faith in Christ for all of eternity. Now the earth is present here as we open up the story, but it's not formed in any specific way. There's water there, but it lacks a sense of purpose. And then in verse three, God speaks light into existence and it was good. Now, if you know the Bible, you're realizing that light is not coming from the sun for the sun has not been created just yet. How then is there light? And one idea really describes how the Bible describes who God is. God is light. And, and it speaks of this light in a forever reality in the book of Revelation, chapter 22, verse 5. Scripture says, night will be no more. There will be no need for light or lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and he will reign forever. So we truly don't know necessarily what the light is, but we know this, that God is infinite and that we are finite and that we cannot understand all the things that took place at creation. But we know this, that there was God and that there was light. And then he separates the light from the darkness. A distinction is made between light, the things that are lit and the things that are in the dark. And again, there's no sun, but we begin to understand that the earth must be rotating for there is evening and then there is morning. There is light coming from one direction and the earth is experiencing lightness, light, and it's experiencing dark. Light was coming. And the Bible describes this great light throughout not only the Old Testament, but even into the New Testament. But I think it's important to describe not only the light here, but also the day. There's been a lot of debate about the days of creation. Did God do what he said he did? Is six days a real reality for creation to have taken place? Six literal 24-hour days. Now, I wanna just take a moment and I wanna go to the classroom just for a second. So kind of bear with me. For us to understand the truth here, we need to understand a little bit of Hebrew. The Hebrew word for day is the word yom. And, and it literally means a day, a 24-hour period. Now, and it's interesting here because the idea and the understanding of Yom points to a young earth. Now, we here, most of us believe in a young earth theory that the earth was created in six literal 24-hour days, and, and we get that from the understanding of the word Yom. But some of you may be asking the question, well, if that's the truth, what about scriptures that say that a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day? Let's look at that scripture. Second Peter chapter three, verse eight says this, but do not overlook this fact, beloved, that with the Lord a day is a thousand years and a thousand years is as one day. For us to understand what that means, we have to kind of put it in context. Let's really look at what the scripture says. The scripture says that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years. 
Now, Peter is talking about the second coming of Christ, and he is reminding the people who are hearing and reading his word that with God, time is not the same as it is with us. That our differences in time and how we view that's very different. So it may seem like a long time for us before the second coming of Christ, but it may be a short time for God. For with God is not bound by our time. What may be a thousand years could just be one day to him. Or one day to him could be a thousand years. The point I'm making is that Second Peter is not really pointing back into Genesis. It's pointing to the coming of Christ and the fact that God is not bound by our time. We believe that Genesis chapter 1 and 2 are meant to be read literally, that the earth was literally created in six days. Now, this word yom, it's interesting. Outside the book of Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, it's used 410 times throughout the Old Testament. And all 410 times refer to one literal 24-hour day. The question might come, why would Genesis 1 then be the exception to that rule? There are other words in the Hebrew language that to refer to a very long piece of time for, or even an infinity amount of time. But those words are not used here in Genesis chapter 1. And then additionally, the writer of Genesis, our brother Moses, describes for us what a day is. That the day starts in the evening and then there was morning and then it describes and it was the first day and it was the second day and it was the third day. Now, this phrase is interesting because the Old Testament understood, people throughout the Old Testament understood that day didn't begin in the morning, but it began in the evening at sunset. That's when the day started. Here in the West, in modern time, we believe that day begins at 12 o'clock a.m. And it goes to 11.59 p.m. from morning into the evening. But here in the Old Testament, it's from evening into the morning. It's very specific. The point is the language is very intentional to use not only the common word for a 24-hour period, but then to also provide parameters of what that day looked like, evening and morning. It wasn't eons of mornings and millions of years of evenings and, and mornings, but it was all just one 24-hour day, all indicating that the earth was created in six days. Now, there are other theories out there about this idea of, of what creation took place and how long it took. There's the day-age theory that the days described here in Genesis were actually geological ages, that their length is unequal and they're approximate in various layers of described that's in geology. But if that were true and one day was a length or an age of time, how then did plants sustain life without the sun? How then did pollination take place without the insects or birds? There's another alternative theory called the alternative age day theory, that days were 24 hours in length, but each day is separated by an age of time. And if that were true, that would mean that this one word means both things, it means not only 24 hours, but also a long period of time. There's confusion there. And then maybe one of the most popular theories related to uh, against a 24-hour day period is the gap theory, that there's a gap between Genesis chapter 1-1 and Genesis chapter 1-2, that in 1-1 God created the perfect world, but then in 1-2, in that time frame between 1-1 and 1-2, Satan fell from grace, was placed in charge of the world and rebelled. God judged him and then destroyed the world. And then the, the days of creation 
from that moment on, don't describe a creation, but a recreation. And there may be some account to that, but in the scriptures, if we read it conservatively and for what it says in a literal translation, it's very difficult for us to understand that the gap theory holds weight. So we say that the day means a day and that God did what he said he was going to do and that we read this in a very literal fashion. And for me, I think sometimes we can get caught up in the argument and we lose sight of the whole purpose that God is creator. And in that truth, there ought to come from us a great deal of faith and trust in his power and in his wonder. Day one, God creates the heavens and the earth. Day two, God creates the sky. And he says there in verse six, let there be an expanse. And some of your translations may say, let there be a firmament. And it's the idea that we're beating out a sheet of metal. There's a separation that's taking place. And it's separating the water that will be in the air and the water that is denser that will create the oceans and the seas. And in the moment, God speaks and creates the atmosphere around the earth. That he separates water from water. And it's the second time that this word of this idea of separation takes place in the midst of creation. Often when we think of creation, we think of putting together. But here you'll see throughout the creation that God is separating some things. And in that separation, he is organizing and he can do so because he is God. Separating water from water. And it makes me think of how life is created. That in one cell, life is created, then it divides, and then it divides, and then it divides, and then it divides. And out of that comes maturity and growth and purpose. And if there was no separation, then there wouldn't be organization. And often for us, and what that means today, is there wouldn't be organisms. We exist because of the division that happens within us. And to take it just a, a little bit of, of grace here, I would say that sometimes we're so thoughtful of some of the separation in our lives and we don't realize that God may be pruning us, taking some things away from us, dividing some things for our maturity and for our own growth. But in day two, God creates the sky. The sky forms a barrier of water between the surface of the earth and moisture in the air. God does this. In day three, God creates the plants and the dry land. Verse nine, it says, let dry land appear. In verse 13, let the earth sprout vegetation. God does some really wonderful things. Continents are created. Islands are above the water. Large bodies of water are named seas and the ground is named land. And God declares that all of this is Good. Now it's noticeable here that the three great divisions of vegetation are then claimed and named trees and plants and grasses. And they're, and they're not created the way that light or air was created. They're, they're created in, in, a, in a way where they're already mature producing fruit that immediately they can reproduce. And in that reproduction, they're going to continue to grow and continue to grow and continue to grow. And right here at day three, God is looking out for mankind, for man will need what God will provide from day three. And the maturation of mature plants and, and then coming animals will be part of the created order. Creation account not only speaks of heaven and earth, but it also speaks an incredible amount of who God is, his nature and his character, that God is very thoughtful of us. And in his nature, 
And from nature, we see his nature as creator. And what I want to do for the next few moments is I want to step away from the created reality of day one, day two, day three. Those are very straightforward. And I, I want us to look at the scripture and the text of the language because I believe it reflects the greatness of who God is. And if we miss this in Genesis chapter one, I think often we can discount it as we read the rest of the Old Testament. There are three very unique phrases that are repeated here in these 10 verses that I think really point to the nature of God. One of those is God speaks. Scripture says, and God said, and God said, and God said, let there be light. And God said, let there be an expanse. And God said, let there be waters and dry ground. God said, let there be vegetation. God said, let there be stars and, and sun and moon and fish and birds and animals. And God said, let us make man in his own image. And it was so, God speaks it so. You know, we can look over how really important that phrase, and God said, really is. It points to how he works. You know, God could have just done it without saying it but he chose not to, he chose to speak it. And it reveals to us in Genesis chapter one that God will work through his speech, that God's word will be the vehicle by which he works. God's word, his spoken word here in creation is incredible and powerful. That out of voice and speech, something comes that there was nothing there before. He just speaks it and it happens. There is an incredible power of who God is and we see that in how he speaks. But the word of God in spoken form is incredible throughout all of scripture. God speaks to his people. God speaks to those and delivers them. God uses his son Jesus and through Jesus, God speaks out miracles over sin, miracles over blindness and lameness. See, God raises people from the dead by a spoken word. The word of God is powerful. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 says this, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and spirit, of joint and marrow, discerning the thoughts and the intention of the hearts. Here's what God does in his word. He not only can speak creation, not only does he have power over creation, but he knows our hearts and our motives through his word. It is power. Power of creation. Psalm 33, 6 says this. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, the starry host by the breath of his mouth. A few verses later in verse 9. When he spoke, the world was created at his command, everything appeared. So we know this church, we know that God speaks. And so if God is going to speak and as such will work because of his speech, he will create, he will craft, he will communicate through his word. The question I have for us is, are we listening? Silence is awkward, isn't it? When I go to a store and I'm standing in line, or when there's a moment of pause in my life, I do what many of you do. I get out my, you can say it, 
phone. Because I'm much more comfortable being distracted than I am listening. Some of us have a lot of noise. Some of the noise in our life is doubt and anxiety. Some of the noise in our life is anger. And some of us literally have literal noise in our life. The TV's always on. The phone's always in our hand. I would challenge you, if God works by speaking, we should listen. Amen? Yeah. Are you listening? So God speaks. Secondly, we see it in a phrase here, God succeeds. Scripture says that God would speak and then it was so. When God said it became so, I wonder what that's like. I love my children. I love the fact that God gave us four really great kids. And I love the fact that God has given us the responsibility to steward them and train them up in his word. But I sometimes struggle to love my children. I don't know if you guys can relate to me at all. I come home later than they come home. But when I come home and I get out of the car after a long, grueling day of work, I'll see a trail of their existence that begins at the door of the garage into our home. And it doesn't just stop there. But as I open the door, as I go through the hallway and as I'm making our way through the great room into our kitchen area, I see a minefield of their possessions. And it's astonishing to me exactly what takes place in the moment from the garage to the kitchen for them. It was like, it's like they're zombies walking in in a daze, taking off everything they possibly can because on the floor is a backpack and a phone or an iPad and there's cords related to those things. There might be a coat or, or a jacket or a cap. And then my unfavorite, there are shoes and socks and it's all in the pathway from entering the home into our kitchen area. And all they can think about is food because that's where they're going. It all stops at the pantry. And I walk in and I can't walk, I can't walk in our house because I'm constantly picking up shoes and socks. And it drives me batty. Listen, I don't know what's happening, but I have spoken several times to my wonderful, godly, obedient children and said, please pick up your shoes and socks. But guess what? It's not so. But with God, it's always so. He succeeds. Always. Every time. There's never been a time he hasn't come through. Ezekiel 12, 28. Therefore say to him, this is what the sovereign Lord says, none of my words will be delayed. Whatever I say will be fulfilled, declares the sovereign Lord. Joshua 21, 45. Not one of all the Lord's good promises to Israel failed. Everyone was fulfilled. When God gives a promise, it comes true all the time. Not only now, forever. God always 
succeeds. He speaks it, it becomes so. He cannot lie. He cannot be overruled or overthrown or overwhelmed. God's circumstances don't change. He is never not in control over all things all the time. Our God succeeds. That ought to just fuel you up for whatever's coming your way. Because our God is thoughtful of you. He is faithful yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He succeeds. So what promise aren't you trusting in today? Can we just be reminded that he always succeeds? And so the promises of scripture are true. Promises like if, if you will confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive you. Promises like he will supply you your every need in Christ Jesus. Promises like make your request known to God and he will bring you peace. That if you lack wisdom, ask for it and he will provide. The promises given to Joshua, do not fear, be strong, be courageous. God is with you. He speaks and he succeeds every time. Let us be a people of God who trust in the promises of God. So God speaks and God succeeds. And lastly, this morning, God sovereigns. Now I know some of you English majors are thinking that is not really a word. But God is sovereign and as the noun sovereign, he then verb sovereigns. He is supreme. He is over everything. And in that sovereignty, God does some unique things here in creation that I think point to that. One, he names things. That in these days we've read, in the days that we'll read next week and the week after, we will understand that God names them. He calls light day. He calls darkness night. He calls the expanse heaven. He calls the dry land earth. He calls the waters sea. As creator, he has right to name them. When Brooke and I had our first son, I didn't hand the doctor my son and said, here, you name him. Wasn't his right. Moreover, it wasn't his responsibility. I was the owner. I was the creator. I had the right and the responsibility of naming him. And at the very beginning, we see that God is not only creating, but then he's engaged in his creation by naming it. And I believe God is naming things, not just because he is doing something of taking nothing and creating something, but he, as we said earlier, is organizing creation, that there is an order to it. And if there's an order to it and he is sovereign, then we have no right to doubt the order of all that he has made. As he is sovereign and we certainly our, are not. Here's how we do that in our time. We pick and choose what we want to do and what commands we want to obey. If God is sovereign and he sovereigns and he is the right because he is the creator and he's the owner and he's the craftsman, then I don't have the right to decide what commands to follow and what commands I choose not to follow. Politely, and let me say it this way, what command are you politely ignoring? These are usually commands that we have just chosen not to do. 
And by not doing them, it really doesn't affect other people. It just kind of affects us. And, and we pretend that it really doesn't become an obstacle in our relationship with God because we still come to church. We still help other people. We're still good people. But truthfully, there may be some things that God has called you to do that you have politely ignored. And as a result, it has become, in, it's become an obstacle in your relationship with him. Things like tithing, giving, things like sharing Christ with somebody else. And then there are the commands that we're not politely ignoring, but we're rudely disobeying. Commands related to loving others, being kind, being gentle, being merciful. Commands related to, as we love other people, the world will see our love for one another and then know that we are disciples. Commands related to harboring bitterness and anger. Not handling situations well. If God is sovereign and therefore he sovereigns, our response ought to be, God, I'll do whatever you tell me to do at any time, at any place. That's not an easy response for us, but he's sovereign. There's more here that we could discuss, but we're out of time. And I would just say this, as we take this all in, we feel comfortable with the familiarity of, of the creation story, right? God creates the plants and the animals and the birds, and, and eventually he's going to create man. And, and we're going to get there in these coming weeks. But I would just hope you say this and see this, that creation is, is not about us, but it really is about our God. In the beginning, God did not create man and earth first. In the beginning, God created the heavens. And see, often we live in a world where we think that God revolves around us. But truthfully, God and all things in his creator ought to revolve around him. We can very easily think that creation is about creation, but I truly believe it's about the creator. So when God said, let there be light, the light didn't appear so that we could see creation. Maybe the light appeared so that we could see him. Doesn't just bring us light at creation, but as we begin to unpack Genesis, we'll begin to unpack and understand that there is Jesus, our true light, the light of the gospel of Christ, that like the light at creation, Jesus comes and he separates the light from the darkness, that the light reveals the glory of God, just as creation, it will happen in Christ Jesus, and that we as receivers of the word of God can place our faith in Christ Jesus and participate in that light. The light that God reveals throughout all creation is found certainly in creation, but it's found in his word, it's found in his son Jesus. And the question I have for you, do you see him? So Genesis helps us see him, it helps us see each other. So what's the Holy Spirit saying to you and how will you respond to him?